Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you on this Friday. We have got a lot to go over today. These are just incredible stories. Uh, We've just passed an anniversary. It was the uh, anniversary of the death of Hans and uh, Sophie Scholl, who were caught distributing anti-Nazi leaflets at Munich University. Uh, my guest uh, is going to take us, Dr. Paul Shrimpton, is going to give us a tour of the uh, White Rose Movement, the place of the Shoals, but in the, as a reminder that uh, college students uh, don't have to conform to the social pressures of their day. They can stand up and be counted. And, well, we'll hear more as we talk with Dr. Shrimpton. Also coming up in this hour, we go back to a much misunderstood moment in Catholic uh, intellectual history, and that is um, the Galileo affair. Uh, it's it's on the on the evening of February twenty sixth, sixteen sixteen. Galileo met a future saint, and that's the seventy three year old Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. And Bellarmine had been ordered by the Vatican to inform Galileo that he needed to abandon his support of the idea that the Earth and other celestial bodies were orbiting the sun. And the Galileo affair is commonly used as an example of faith and science being incompatible. But it is one of the most misunderstood events in church history. We're going to unpack it with uh, Corey Hayes, who has written beautifully on it in Church Life Journal. So that's coming up. And then in the second hour of today's program, Dr. Matthew Bunsen joins us for a a ride through the globe. Stories uh, from uh, Argentina, stories from Poland, uh, stories from Australia, stories from Rome. There's so many fascinating uh, things going on. And, you know, I looked at the stories uh, that we would likely be covering. And it's interesting. You have this dialectic where you have saints on one hand and you have the debauched on the other. And so uh, we have to keep that in mind on this feast day of St. Polycarp, uh, who resisted uh, the pressure to worship Caesar as Lord. Uh, He knew, of course, that that wasn't real. Christ was Lord. And he would, he would not deny reality. So, all that's coming up. But first, the headlines with Steve. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Friday, February 23rd, it's the Feast of St. Polycarp. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. President Biden is imposing more than 500 new sanctions on Russia in response to the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. While speaking from the White House, Biden said Vladimir Putin must be held accountable. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Alexei's death. Yesterday I met with Alexei's wife and daughter in California, where his daughter attends college. Alexei was an incredibly courageous man. Biden says Kyiv is still standing and remains free nearly two years after Russian troops invaded the country. 
He called on the House to pass a $95 billion Senate-approved foreign aid package that includes critical military aid for Ukraine. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley continues to poll well behind former President Trump in her home state. Votes in the Palmetto State will head to the polls tomorrow for the GOP primary. Haley has vowed to stay in the race as Trump's last serious Republican challenger, but Trump has maintained a double-digit lead, including one poll putting him up by 35 points. AT&T says a software update was the cause of a cell phone outage that affected thousands of customers. The service disruption started early Thursday and was resolved last night. Federal agencies joined in an investigation of a possible cyber attack. The foul play was ruled out. A Catholic school in Oakland, California is closing over safety concerns. The Oakland Diocese says St. Anthony's has seen a rise in crime, including human trafficking operations near the campus. Other reasons include homelessness, unemployment, and a lack of affordable housing in the neighborhood. Parents received notice two weeks ago. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. On February 22nd of 1943, Hans and Sophie Scholl were put to death for their resistance efforts against the Nazis. Today, they are regarded as national heroes in Germany and are among the best-known examples of resistance uh, to Nazis from within Germany itself. My guest, Dr. Paul Shrimpton, has penned a wonderful piece in the National Catholic Register with an eye towards encouraging today's young scholars uh, to resist and put conscience before conformity. Uh, Dr. Shrimpton uh, has written two books on St. John Newman, A Catholic Eden, Newman's Oratorio School, and The Making of Men, The Idea and Reality of Newman's University in Oxford and Dublin. Recently, he brought out two volumes of Newman's unpublished university papers, and he teaches at uh, Maudlin College uh, in Oxford. Dr. Shrimpton, good to have you with me. Thanks. Um, good, um, good afternoon. I know it's good to even here a few hours ahead of you. Yes, that is true. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for the uh, article that you penned in the National Catholic Register. Um, many of our listeners are not familiar with the White Rose Movement. Uh, tell us a little bit about who Hans and Sophie Schull were and about their, uh, the group they put together that we call the White Rose Movement. Yes. Um, it wasn't actually formally a group, but it's a, a collection, should we say, a loose collection of perhaps six, eight individuals in Germany um, based in Munich, in the south of Germany. Um, and they, we don't quite know how many were involved in the duplication of initially four um, sort of new- newsletters, flyers, um, two-sided, typed, uh, vehemently anti-Nazi. They produced those in a 20-day period in June and July um, 1942. Uh, something which was... Uh, shocking to to everyone um 
the the men who took part went off to the to the eastern front, and um, when they returned from Stalingrad um, in in late autumn '42, they made plans to not just make hundreds of leaflets but thousands. And these the fifth and sixth leaflets were circulated in January and February um, 1943, and it's. Um, Yesterday was the day in which they were tried and um, anniversary of um, and executed. So we're talking of eight, 18th of February. They went into their own university in Munich, um, the Maximilian University, and um, distributed hundreds and hundreds of these um, flyers, these leaflets, and were caught. And uh, within six days, um, they were tried and then executed later on the same day um, from the orders of Hitler. So they, apart from the, of the people who resisted the Nazis, um, people think foremost of the July 44 bomb plot. Right. um, And after them come these students, um, Lutheran, Orthodox, Catholic, Christians, in the main, who were quite extraordinary. Most of the young people, in fact, most of the people full stop who resisted were from the left, if not the far left, often from working class backgrounds. Um, the special thing about the Shoals and their Hans and Sophie, brother and sister, was that they were from middle, upper middle class backgrounds, mm. very respectable, highly educated, very sporting, musical highly cultured individuals. Um, my interest in, in them was uh, arose in 2010 when John Henry Newman was beatified. Um, I read two articles in the German Newman um, Journal about this and decided I needed to investigate to write a proper article about Newman's connection. And when I next had time, four or five years later, I started reading all the books in the English language on this movement, and I was absolutely uh, entranced with them and their lives. Mm. Because the um, Hans and Sophie uh, both joined the uh, Hitler Youth in 1933 against their father's wishes and actually became group leaders uh, in their town. Wow. So it's extraordinary that these two individuals, over a period of um, seven or eight years, should end up being... Um, so they're renowned for being totally anti-Nazi. So I suppose as um, a teacher, I was very interested to see what transformation took place there, what made them disenchanted, and to sort of see uh, through it all yes. how it was. How, how did, what, what caused them to change? Uh, it, it's all sorts of things feed in. One, of course, would be the, the mistreatment of the young Jewish people they knew who were, first of all, removed from their schools um, and then treated badly in their neighborhood and then eventually had to wear special garments to identify them. Um, it was yeah, related to some, in part, Jewish literature, which they were no longer allowed to, to use. Um, they actually, although they loved the marching and the songs and the banners and the camping, of the Hitler Youth, a bit like the Boy Scout thing, um, more sinister sort of overtones gradually came in, and there were great and great restrictions on what they could read. Then they just found the whole atmosphere utterly stultifying, 
um, <laughs> realise, in fact, that their father was right. <laughs> he was an extraordinary man, their father. Five children, they all joined the Hitler Youth against his very, oh. very strong advice. Wow. But they all came back. So, yes, tomorrow might be listening to what Dad has got to say. Um, but it was in m- m- much more than that, it was the fact they went a stage further in, in trying to make sense of the what was going on in Germany around them and the sheer darkness of it all. Um, they were searching for answers in their poets, in literature, and they turned actually to, to the sort of classical authors from 2,000 years ago and into Christian authors. And it's in people like Augustine, St. Augustine above all, um, that they began to see answers to some extent St. Thomas Aquinas, also living Catholic authors, um, George Bernanos, they, um, on a skiing few days up in the hills at winter, they read his diary of a country priest. <laughs> teenagers, late teenagers, people in their early 20s, it's amazing <laughs> during the war, they were reading this sort of thing. Right. Others like Leon Bloy, Paul Claudel, a bit of Dostoyevsky. Wow. And for me, what grabbed my attention was they suddenly at one stage discovered John Henry Newman um, and it was in Munich where you had these students meeting illegally, discussing things, they suddenly realized that they were adults. They were, well, they were people who were removed from the university, intellectuals, writers, and others, who were doing exactly the same. And it's when these two groups merged, they, uh, they both gained a lot from each other. So to some extent, their meetings were um, cultural, but much more than that. It was a, a making sense of the world, but they both enjoyed reading and literature. Um, it initially was sort of French and English, but when the Germans broke the pact with Russia, then Russian literature became um, and it was it became harder and harder to, to, to get hold of. Um, so effectively, and you can see it in the diaries of these two, they're Christian, they, they learned to pray again, and Christianity became the main driving force in making sense of everything they, they were doing. Although at the same time, they still struggled with how a good God could allow so much evil to take place, which they were witnessing firsthand, but hearing about secondhand, especially from people who returned from the East, from Poland, were reporting what was happening to the Jews there. But when the men went off um, to on the Russian front and saw the barbarity there, they, they found it just utterly chilling. Um, Sophie so had yeah, a boyfriend, it, it, didn't I, she? Sophie had a boyfriend who was deployed to the Eastern she did. Front. His name was yes, his name was Fritz Hartnagel, and um, probably for about three years until her death. In fact, she saw him for the very last time. I think it's May forty-two. And her present to him, going off to the Russian front, um, were two volumes of sermons by Newman, in fact, um, <laughs> wow. among other things. Oh, yeah. And he wrote several letters back. And in the, one of them, he talks about how reading sermons on conscience were like drinking drops of precious wine. Mm. And in the following letter, he actually quotes, and this is people who've done very close work on the German translations of Newman. It's a particular sermon. I think it's 1837, preached in Oxford called The Testimony of Conscience. And very, very similar words 
come up in this letter written back to Sophie from her boyfriend. So, yeah, it's the... Yes, he wasn't a Christian then. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. But when he eventually got airlifted out of Stalingrad, one of the last people to be evacuated, he didn't learn of Sophie's execution till a few days afterwards. Mm. But um, when he went to see her parents, the presents he, he bought them was a collection of um, works by John Henry Newman. So they obviously made a huge impression on him. We... We have only about 60 seconds left. Um, the, the movie, Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, is it is it good? Is it one you would recommend? It is absolutely superb, yes. I would recommend it to everyone. I watched it with a group of students last night in Oxford. Again, it was nominated for an Oscar in year 2005 for the best foreign film of the year. It didn't quite make it. Um, but it's what's extraordinary, it's the third television film adaption of the story, but they'd only, it only after the 89 fall of the, the Berlin Wall did they discover all the documents on the White Rose kept by the Gestapo, and it's those which they use for this most recent of the three films. Very good. Well, Dr. Shrimpton, thank you for joining me today, and uh, that was okay. very, very encouraging. Thank you. Dr. Paul Shrimpton is the author of a wonderful article we'll have for you in the Crestigast Archives, Conscience Before Conformity. In Michigan, you are never more than six miles away from a body of water. Shouldn't your kids know how to swim? Big Blue Swim School will give your children the skills they need to keep them safe in the water. Locally owned, Big Blue Swim School is on West Eisenhower Parkway in Ann Arbor, just down from Whole Foods. Stop in or visit BigBlueSwimSchool.com. Register by March 17th to get 60% off your first four lessons when you mention Ave Maria Radio. Beckway Door is a top provider of garage doors as well as home entry, patio, and storm doors. Locally owned since 1978, we give free, no-pressure quotes at prices 20% lower than most competitors and often provide same-day service for garage door repairs. Mention Ave Maria Radio for 10% off the replacement or service of your garage door or the installation of new exterior doors. Visit BeckwayDoor.com. That's BeckwayDoor.com. Modern philosophers Kierkegaard, Shelley, Sartre proposed the idea that existence precedes essence, by which they meant in simpler terms that in the process of time we make or create who and what we are. We understand, of course, that there are those who believe that their doing has been more successful than that of others, and have consequently argued that their being is on a higher state than that of others. This is the kind of thinking that leads to genocide, gas chambers, and abortion clinics. However, folks like Barb and Patrick and Paul and Alicia believe that from the beginning human essence is divinely ordered and infinitely valuable, and where else can we state this more clearly than our defense of freeborn children, who cannot prove themselves or justify themselves. They can only be, which is why they are so precious to one named I Am. Go to GuadalupeWorkers.org What is the essence of the Catholic Church? Unity is the essence of the Catholic Church, according to the Catholic Catechism. In the Creed, we profess the Catholic Church to be the sole Church of Christ, when we confess it to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. 
These are the essential features of the church and her mission. Only faith can recognize these properties coming from her divine source. Even historically, however, there are manifestations of this origin, her propagation, her holiness, her fruitfulness, her Catholic unity, and invincible stability give evidence of credibility and irrefutable witness to her divine mission. The Church is one because of her divine source. The highest exemplar and source of this unity is the Holy Trinity. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio. No one should ever have to choose between feeding their family and keeping their heat on. Impossible questions like rent or diapers demand answers every day, likely in your very own neighborhood, but you can help. Hope Clinic partners with you to provide free medical, dental, food, and behavioral health care, all in Jesus' name. While others face impossible choices, your choice is an easy one. Partner with Hope Clinic today. Find out how at www.thehopeclinic.org. At K. Ruse Jewelry, you're more than a number. Tony K. Ruse, a master diamond setter with 45 years of experience, will take the time to listen to your jewelry design idea and work to create the perfect custom engagement ring, anniversary gift, or even do complex repairs. You can expect heirloom quality jewelry that will shine for generations to come. Visit K. Ruse Jewelry at 504 Main Street in Belleville next to T-Mobile or call 734-444-2323. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. From the standpoint of the, the history of uh, Western intellectual history, the Galileo affair is one of the most influential moments. It's also one of the most misunderstood moments. And uh, John Paul II, uh, when he gave his important speech about the Galileo affair, uh, after the church had done intense investigation. He said, the new science, with its methods and the freedom of research which they implied, obliged the theologians of that time to examine their own criteria of scriptural interpretation. Most of them did not know how to do so. Paradoxically, Galileo, a sincere believer, showed himself to be more perceptive in this regard than the theologians who opposed him. My guest, Dr. Corey Hayes, has penned a wonderful uh, piece in Church Life Journal called The End of the Galileo Affair, Galileo's Theological Contributions, and uh, Corey teaches upper school theology and humanities at John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. He previously served as senior professor of philosophy and theology at St. Joseph Seminary College, and his research and teaching interests include uh, Byzantine and Eastern Christian theology, philosophy of nature, and the relationship between theology, philosophy, and the empirical sciences. Corey, good to have you with me. Thank you. Uh, good to be here. Thanks for the, the invitation. Let's. M most people, as you lead off your article with, most people think that the traditional Christian way of interpreting the Bible was very narrowly literal 
and that it was only in modern times that some Christians abandoned that literal approach in favor of scientific, or really forced to by scientific discoveries, and that's the reason Galileo was condemned in 1633. It's because the church had this very narrowly literal straitjacket, and Galileo, uh, in his belief in uh, Copernicanism and uh, the Earth revolving or orbiting the Sun, um, that that couldn't be fit into uh, a, a proper understanding of Scripture. Was it really just a battle between scriptural literalists and the new scientists? Um, not quite. So, as I mentioned in the piece, and this is well known by um, theologians, church historians. Um, that from very early on in Christian history, say, for example, with St. Augustine of Hippo, mm-hmm. um, there had been lessons learned about, you have to be, one has to be very, very careful interpreting biblical texts. Um, for Augustine, it was particularly Genesis. Um, one of his main concerns was one has to be very careful in interpreting Genesis, for example. Um, and he warned Christians against making sort of overt claims about the natural world based upon a surface reading of Genesis, because, well, it often it happened that you had pagan natural philosophers who had a better sense of what was going on in nature, and all this seemed to do was kind of, you know, put the scriptures up and the Christian faith up for scorn. Yeah. And so yeah. from the very early times, especially regarding Genesis and Genesis's certain claims about the natural world, um, the construction of the earth and the firmament, etc. There had been a deep Christian tradition, a Catholic tradition, of being very, very cautious. And this is tradition Augustine and even um, those others in the Galileo affair knew well. Uh, so Galileo didn't he didn't he try to appeal to that uh, tradition? Uh, he appealed to that tradition. Um, very powerfully and eloquently, actually, in 1615, in a work called A Letter to the Grand Duchess Christina. Mm-hmm. Christina of Lorraine was the mother of his patron, and it was a bit of a conceit. The letter wasn't really to her. It was meant to win people over to his position. Mm-hmm. And in it, he's actually a master of using Augustine's on the literal interpretation of Genesis, for sure. But one of the things Galileo didn't count on I think you might say is sort of uh, the spirit of his age um, and actually the long shadow of the Protestant Reformation and certain abuses in biblical interpretation. And the Church had become very, very cautious since the Council of Trent in this regard. And that's something I think Galileo underestimated or didn't fully appreciate. Hmm. Uh, so in, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation's the, the church took a more conservative approach to scriptural interpretation um, out of sure so yeah one of the one of the issues on which the reformation pivoted were interpretations of augustine regarding justification yep so luther appeals to augustine all the time john calvin famously said uh, something to the effect in all things augustine is our father you know <laughs> right um and so one of the things the Reformation had proved, uh, that, excuse me, the trend had prudentially um, laid down in the Council is that 
any biblical interpretation regarding, quote, faith and morals that departed from the consensus reading of the fathers was forbidden both in public and in private, um, by the way. And so this had sort of, for reasons that were, you know, in the Times understandable, um, tended to want to narrow, um, narrow what was kind of possible. Um, and even in Galileo's time, we're not even a hundred years on the other side of the Reformation, and it had really sort of transformed uh, the face of Europe and the Church's place in European Christianity. Well, but Galileo would have said, well, astronomical questions are not matters of faith and morals, and therefore the rule laid down by the Council of Trent doesn't, doesn't really apply to me. Um, he argues that actually quite forcefully in many, many places. Um, and he probably, from our perspective, um, most people would say that seems uh, quite obvious. Um, but in his day, um, it didn't seem that obvious to very many. So take St. Robert Bellarmine, for example. Mm -hmm. He agreed with Galileo and says, of course, you're right. Regarding the topic or the issue of the Constitution of the Heavens, of course this isn't a matter of faith. Um, but Bellarmine says, well, however, it seems the author of Joshua plainly asserts something like geocentrism, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of faith regarding the topic, but Bellarmine would say, regarding the speaker. Oh. Now, Galileo had a perfectly good answer to this, he, based on Aquinas and Augustine. Maybe the author of Joshua was just talking in accordance with common experience of the senses. It mm -hmm. appears the sun rises and sets, so of course he would talk this way. But Bellarmine didn't think that was convincing to his mind. Yeah. Um, did, did, were, were Galil, let's just shift gears a little bit here. Were Galileo's scientific arguments uh, that compelling? Um, well, it depends on one's measure. So one of the things that every player in the Galileo Fair agreed, um, several principles, by the way, to get to answer your question eventually. Sure. Everyone agreed on the unity of truth. Everyone agreed that truths of faith and truths of reason cannot, in principle, ever contradict. All contradictions are merely apparent. So everyone agreed on this. Everyone even agreed that scientific facts, as we would call them, that's anachronistic. They wouldn't have used that, quite that terminology. Mm -hmm. utterly relevant for interpreting the Bible. Um, so everyone agreed in that regard. And even St. Robert Bellarmine famously in a letter to a priest, Father Paolo Antonio Foscarini, who was a Carmelite and, like Galileo, mathematician and astronomer. Bellarmine says, look, if you can demonstrate, and that's the word he uses, demonstrate that Copernicanism is true, he says, then of course we would have to look at biblical passages differently, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, but there are two things at play here. Um, Bellarmine says demonstrate. Um, he doesn't mean exactly what we would mean, sort of by modern scientific notions of reasoning to the best explanation based on evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, but beside that fact, all of Galileo's data points, so in 1610 he had helped design the first telescope useful for celestial observations, by today's standards, utterly primitive, by the way. Mm -hmm. It didn't work half the time. The weather had to be perfect. But nonetheless, um, in 1610, he discovered the Jovian satellites or moons of Jupiter, that Venus has phases. Uh, he's the co-discoverer of sunspots with Christoph Scheiner, a Jesuit astronomer. 
So all of Galileo's data points that could be explained by Copernicanism could also be explained by alternative models. Hmm. Um, Tycho Brahe's model, for example, which was geocentric, Earth at the center, and geostatic, but famously has the moon revolving around the Earth and all other celestial bodies revolving around the sun as it revolves around the Earth. So by the standards of his time, and even ours, Galileo doesn't quite have what would constitute proof. Uh, Galileo's favorite proof, so-called, were the motions of the tides. Galileo thought, since we could see this every day, this must be cause, this must be the, the, the kind of strongest proof because it's so obvious. It's not obscure like astronomical reality. So he thought the tides were explained by the motion of the Earth. You might think of water sloshing around in a bowl. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, that is, well, false. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the standards of his own day, didn't, didn't have proof. And proof was slow in coming. So eventually, uh, the aberration of starlight is shown by James Bradley. A phenomenon called stellar parallax is eventually um, demonstrated to be greater than zero. I think it's in 1838 by Friedrich Bessel, and it's really not until Isaac Newton's Principia do we have a cogent mathematical framework in which to even kind of cogently conceive of something like heliocentrism. So <laughs> proof was slow in coming. I mean, this is this is so amazing given the flippant way most people approach this discussion of Galileo. In their mind, it's simply a matter of an authoritarian, uh, narrow-minded church with brittle uh, hermeneutical principles um, imposing them on this uh, free-thinking, brilliant uh, scientist who had established, beyond doubt, uh, the Copernican model. And it's got, it must drive you nuts to see the Galileo name show up in movies and novels as though. I often, I often say whenever I give talks, and I talk about this a lot, um, is whenever, whenever this comes up, um, a seance is held and the specter of Galileo is always kind of raised as the one shining example. <laughs> Corey, hold it there. We'll have to take a break. We'll come back. My guest, Dr. Corey Hayes, uh, teaches upper school theology and humanities at John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. He's written a piece called The End of the Galileo Affair, Galileo's Theological Contributions. Another year has come and gone. And whether you like it or not, Uncle Sam requires you to make an accounting. Perhaps it's time to call Myler and Zipka. They work with you to legally minimize your tax bill and identify ways to reduce future taxes. Eliminate the nagging feeling that you're paying more taxes than you need to. Call Ken Zipka today at 734-930-5500. Myler and Zipka. Integrity, excellent value, and people dedicated to a long-term relationship. 734-930-5500. The Bench Pub in Livonia. How can I help you? Is your chili really as amazing as you claim? Yes, sir. Made with fresh Eastern Market beef and our secret blend of spices, our recipe even won the West Virginia State Chili Championship. It's so popular, we only have one bowl left today. Oh, wow. I'll be right there. Homemade award-winning chili, only at the Bench Pub on Five Mile Road in Livonia. Mention Ave Maria Radio for 10% off. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. 
Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. The question of gender identity is divisive, controversial, and often painful. How should parents respond to sons and daughters desiring to change their gender? Will the church remain free to teach that we are created male and female? What do the sciences say? We'll find out on March 2nd when Father Gabriel Richard High and Ave Maria Radio host our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference. Responding to Gender Dysphoria in Truth and Charity. Attorney John Bursch takes on gender ideology. Professor of Endocrinology Dr. Paul Cruz covers the sciences. Father Sean Kilcauley speaks as a pastor. And you will bring plenty of questions for our panel. Be there Saturday morning, March 2nd, from 8.15 until noon at Father Gable Richard High in Ann Arbor. The event is free, includes a light breakfast, so register at AveMariaRadio.net or fgrhs.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Resetting your password. Unsubscribing from emails. Printing anything. Why are simple things sometimes so complicated? Thankfully, with an auto owner's insurance independent agent, getting the right coverage for your business doesn't have to be one of them. So you can get back to more important things, like learning how that printer works. That's simple human sense. Call Choice Insurance Agency at 734-641-4200. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Corey Hayes. He has... uh, penned a wonderful uh, article, actually two, uh, The End of the Galileo Affair, Galileo's Theological Contributions in Church Life Journal, and then uh, also even doctors of the church make theological mistakes now and then. And we're taking a look at the Galileo Affair and trying to uh, understand it. I think, um, Corey, I think a lot of people were surprised to know that uh, St. John Paul II uh still saw this as uh, a problem in Catholic intellectual history that needed to be settled. And uh, tell me a little bit about 
why this was uh, uh, an itch he had to scratch. Oh, in terms of John Paul II, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you make me think of actually the speech uh, from which you quoted right before, um, which we tend to call sort of uh, Pope St. John Paul II's rehabilitation right, of right. Leo. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I jokingly uh, say this sometimes. So of all the wonderful things of Pope St. John Paul II's pontificate, um, I've uh, actually not jokingly referred to it as sort of the Great Apology Tour, right? Sort yes, the great, okay. The Great Recon- Reconciliation Tour. And you, when you think of um, a particular, you might say, historical mistake or even scandal, and look, it is just true, and I use the word scandal um, in its sort of ancient acceptation of a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. In Greek, a scandalon is a pebble in your sandal and you can't walk right, you know, this sort of thing. Um, that he knew the Galileo affair was kind of the gift that has kept on giving <laughs> for those who, who wanted to paint, right. um, who wanted to paint, and it's just true, wanted to paint the church kind of as a programmatic, um, anti-rational persecutor of, you know, the human scientific endeavor, the rational endeavor, whatever. Um, yeah, I think for just those reasons alone, um, he saw it as fairly crucial and of a kind of a transcendence and transcendent importance as one is, you know, if we need to look at, you know, church history and see mistakes, this was, you know, if not top candidate, let's say in the top five. Mm-hmm. And so he emphasized that uh, the theologians uh, of Galileo's time didn't uh, examine their own, they, they didn't adequately examine, they were not self-critical regarding their own uh, approach to Scripture. And uh, there are three, three factors followed, uh, contributed to this failure. One, as you pointed out, the rules of scriptural interpretation at the Council of Trent, uh, which were formed uh, in response to the various Protestant reformations. Uh, secondly, a new understanding of science's methods. And thirdly, new ideas about the autonomy of science. Um, today, those, those, we understand scientific methodology, uh, the whole philosophy of science areas can get very technical. Um, and people often argue about uh, scientific method and its limits. Um, and people argue about the autonomy of science. Uh, how do you, um, uh, do we always know where science ends and anthropology begins, which then gets us to the nature of the human sure. person? Uh, sure. And now we're in clearly theological ground. So. Sure, sure. Um, so to start, so in Gal- one of the things that the Galileo Fair has helped um, or has aided, you know, uh, what's the thing, God writes straight with crooked lines. Sort right, of thing. right. One of the things that the Galileo Fair has enabled us to do is actually to clarify some things that we thought were clear, but apparently weren't crystal clear. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the difference between, let's say, a scientific matter versus a philosophical matter, let's say, versus a theological matter. Right. Um, so, 
Um, and actually, in um, his letter of, of I almost say famous, famous to me, um, a letter that uh, Pope St. John Paul II wrote to Father George Coyne uh, at the time, who was the head of the Vatican Observatory, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Chris Baglow, actually, who runs um, the Science and Religion Initiative at the McGrath Institute for Church Life yes. at the University of Notre Dame, who I do a lot of uh, work with them. And actually, it was actually the genesis of my work, almost the genesis of my work doing things in Galileo. Um, calls this particular letter to Coyne kind of the charter, if you will, um, of the sort of relation between faith and science. Oh. Um, Pope St. John Paul II really sort of lays out this notion um, of proper autonomy, both of theology and both of the natural sciences. So it can be tricky, and possibly in some particular cases tricky, but in the main, uh, maybe one good way to think about it is the sort of question one is asking, or the kind of thing um, at which one is trying to get. So you might think of it this way. If the answer to your question um, is best answered in a metric way, or a way that can ultimately be modeled by or expressed, let's say, mathematically, which in fact is, say, the language of physics, this kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you're probably dealing with a question that is a properly scientific one. And notice I don't say philosophical or rational one. There are all kinds of ways reason can get at the world. Um, as it turns out, our world is material and is can be modeled and thought of metrically, mm-hmm. right, in terms of measurement, sure. etc. cetera. Yeah. And for those aspects of reality, it may just be, and by the way, I think it is, that the sort of modern construal of science and scientific method may be the best way to get at those aspects of the world. Right. Um, right. It just turns out that we think the world is a much richer and deeper place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's yeah. not kind of all there is to it. Yeah. It is unfortunate, uh, from in my view, that oftentimes you'll have people who are actually very talented um, researchers and theoreticians in various domains of science um, who are very good at what they do, but they then, based on properly scientific claims, try to extend those claims into things like we would say kind of metaphysics and then begin to talk about materialism and all of these other kinds of things. How much does that the are, soul that are properly weigh? Philosophical, that are properly philosophical matters and not scientific matters at all. Sorry, yeah. you go ahead. No, I was saying, I mean, this is the kind of thing some, somebody says, well, how much does the soul weigh? You have a soul? How much does the soul weigh? Well... It's that's not the kind of thing that is measured uh, sure. by pounds. Uh, it, it doesn't occupy space. Uh, so, uh, you know, by definition, that's outside the realm of uh, the empirical sciences. Fair enough. Oh, fair enough, and all sorts of things besides. Uh, even even um, someone who would claim to be a materialist of a sort. Um, it's, this has been pointed out even in ancient times, by sometimes by materialists themselves, it is virtually impossible to thoroughly act like one. <laughs> meaning meaning um, there just seems to be something in the human approach to reality. Um, at the very least, we must act, and the world strikes us as if it has qualitative features, mm-hmm. that it can't be reduced to you know, the material, the metric, etc. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, I mean, this gets... in. in Start trying to study consciousness, uh, for sure. instance, in in strictly impersonal ways, 
always comes back to, well, <laughs> are you the person who's doing the investigation, and are you conscious? Well, yeah, <laughs> it's you can't really entirely separate uh, consciousness. You can't really study consciousness as a purely impersonal matter, uh, since the observer uh, is is conscious. Um, sure, well put. So, um, now the, how how effective was this Galileo project that John Paul II? I mean, has this has this been well received? Um, um, as far as I can tell, and from all I've read, yeah, fairly well received. Um, now the, the the shame of the thing is um, that you do the the best you can, and sometimes the best you can is pretty good. But depending on uh, what Aquinas would call the mode of the receiver, meaning how one is disposed to accept what you do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, successful in uh, historical ways. So when you read any decent historian, believer or non-believer. Um, if they know their stuff, they're actually quite good on the Galileo affair um, and can see it in a nuanced way um, and see it not in this kind of sloganish fashion. Mm-hmm. So that's actually quite common. It's just unfortunate. Um, those are never the historians anyone ever wants to interview or have for a soundbite yeah. or those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Uh, it's it's one one of the great problems is this. It never seems to go away. This idea of the great warfare between science and theology. No matter how many uh, historians of science will say, no, there's not been a consistent uh, warfare between science and theology. Uh, yeah, in fact, the, the Galileo affair. It seems to me is you know the poster child for the thing. Yeah. Um, it sticks out precisely because of its exceptional nature. So I, I alluded to before the break, the newsroom seance, right, where they get out the crystal ball, turn out the lights, <laughs> and raise the specter of Galileo. There's a reason for this, that he's really the only specter that they raise. Yeah. Um, the Galileo affair is been the gift that keeps on giving, but it's really one of the few, if not the only, gifts you have. Um, it's very hard to find decent analogs because it's so singular, so scandalous for sure, and I think every um, uh, you know Catholic should own that to some degree. Sure, but it's singular, or fairly singular, rather. One could quibble about you know one's criteria for a thing being singular, unique, but it stands out precisely because it's an exception. Yeah, like sometimes exceptions do. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I agree. Uh, you, we don't have much time, but I thought I'd ask you to just, in your essay, even doctors of the church make theological mistakes now and then. Uh, sure. Talk to me about Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. So, um, there's, oh man, we could, there are several interesting things about Bellarmine here in the Galileo Affair. Um, two things, two things quickly. One about the mistake, but one uh, a mistake that Bellarmine makes that in his defense is in some ways understandable. So uh, Bellarmine knows the St. Augustine as well or even better than Galileo does. So he knows on the, Augustine's on the literal, inter, literal interpretation of Genesis, etc. But one of the big differences between Galileo and Bellarmine is as follows. Um, St. Augustine's caution about basically getting Scripture to write sort of 
checks on physical scientific matters, right, Mm -hmm. that she possibly can't cash. So Augustine always wants to find, you know, possible alternate explanations. Now, Bellarmine, it seems to me, sees this as a maneuver you use when you encounter problems in the text, Hmm. meaning if there's a particular physical claim in Scripture that doesn't seem to square with what we think we know by natural science, then that's time to get creative. Hmm. Otherwise, you just take the biblical text at face value whenever you can. Hmm. That's interesting. What Galileo wants to do is take Augustine's principle, it seems to me, and not make it this kind of um, tool in a toolkit, right, that you take it out when you need it, but to use it as a general principle in all of our approaches to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So Bellarmine, uh, he's, he says, look, and this is not an untraditional position in this day. Every biblical passage has a literal meaning, which is what the sacred author intends, and a metaphorical meaning. Well, okay, if you look at some biblical passages, Joshua chapter 10, where Joshua asked the Lord to stop the motion of the sun, right, to lengthen the day, which was a problematic passage in Galileo's day. It is kind of difficult to see what that could be a metaphor. For. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Bellarmine has got this kind of has got this kind of hurdle where he's like, look, it's either literal and plain, or it's a metaphor, like most humans talk. And what could this be a metaphor for? So he has limitations in that regard. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Corey. I really appreciate your work, and uh, hope we can talk again in the future. My pleasure, and I would be more than willing to do so. God bless. Dr. Corey Hayes teaches upper school theology and humanities at John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. Um, we'll have his uh, two essays from Church Life Journal available for you in the um, Cresta Guest Archives. I'm Al Cresta. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Did you know that the church calls your family to be holy? It's true. Now don't freak out. The church isn't holy because the people in it are anywhere near perfect. It's holy only because Jesus is holy and because the Holy Spirit lives and works in it. And the same thing is true about your domestic church. Our families don't need to be perfect. We only need to open ourselves to God's grace so that we can share His love, healing, and forgiveness with each other and with the people we meet every day out in the world. Remember, holiness isn't restricted to grand gestures. It's as simple as doing ordinary, everyday things in a way that shows God's love. For more tips on living a holier life as a family, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens with Grace. Or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Ben. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Hi. 
This is Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Did you know that the Living Will was created by the Euthanasia Society? The USCCB says a better option is a healthcare durable power of attorney, where you choose a healthcare agent who understands your Catholic values. My Life Angels creates this legal document, available anywhere on mobile phones, safeguarding your medical decisions. My Life Angels will donate a percentage of your membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, in the first segment of today's program, we talked about conscience before conformity and what the White Rose students can teach today's young scholars. Well, let me say there's a moment coming up next Saturday, March 2nd, which again has to do with this question of conscience before conformity. Uh, we have our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference, male and female. He created them, responding to gender dysphoria and truth and charity. Looking forward to seeing you there, 8.15 in the morning till noon. It's going to be at Father Gabriel Richard High School. Great presenters. Learn more at fgrhs.org slash events. And do register ahead of time, fgrhs.org slash events.